Welcome to the latest episode of Rounds Rant. Today I'm joined by Michael Wood, who is a retired Baltimore police officer and veteran of the USMC. Michael made the news uh, back in 2015 for publicly speaking out against police brutality while he was in Baltimore Police Department. And more recently, he has taken his work to online podcasting and other platforms. So to begin, welcome to the show, Michael. And the first question I'd like to ask you is about your upbringing and what are some of the memories from your youth? Well, thanks for the kind introduction and thanks for having me here. I don't think my youth is much different than most kids, especially of like a typical suburban kid that grew up in when I did. I grew up in the late 70s as I was born and kind of grew up in that age where technology wasn't a big thing yet. So I had to grow up without technology, but then got it and ran it from its roots. So to me, TV was still watching commercials and stuff Mm. like that and getting the propaganda of media. So I would watch cops and I would see them running around and chasing the bad guys, getting the drug dealers, going after the guns. And I thought all that stuff sounded fun. And I was that, uh, look, dude, I really want to have good moral stories about why I chose to be a cop. And there are some good reasons. But really, I, I wanted to have fun and I wanted to have the thrill of an adventure. And it seemed as though society praised and enabled me if I did it in this manner Mm. so i wanted to grow up and see the police i wanted to be one of those heroes that we all praise it's how the the lower classes get to the middle classes so i just kind of grew up in a normal neighborhood with a normal upbringing in america in a in a townhouse with mixed races and uh, we were poor so we were lower class people but you know you you do with what you have and you try to aspire to be better and in america there's this really gross thing where you can get better and you can ascend out of the low class and get to the middle class by essentially being a mercenary. Mm. So (laughs) the first way I started to be a mercenary was joining the Marine Corps. Okay. And whereabouts exactly in America did you grow up? I grew up in a suburbs just north of Baltimore. So it's uh, right off of Chesapeake Bay. So there's very uh, sea kind of... uh, bay fishing kind of kind of culture there with with crabs and 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 drinking beer on the back porches and then you have snow all through the winter so you have all four seasons and uh what we know of as a city is is baltimore and i know around the world a lot of people watch the wire and that's kind of how we saw baltimore too even though we were close to it it was like this different far off land when i was just a kid Mm. So when you finish uh, the school and when you finish your, uh, did you go to college or did you go straight into the Marines? Well, I kind of realized there's this little <laughs> sick analogy now, but I, was, I, was, I wasn't very good at school. I wasn't okay. very focused at it at the time. Um, and, and I played football. So I wasn't big enough to do that in a professional environment. So I did have a scholarship offer from Villanova, but I just, didn't think I was prepared for that and I wasn't big enough to play on the on the big stage in you know the NFL. So I kind of just took my of humans to different venues. Yeah. <laughs> so um so so then I I went I mean I signed the contract when I was 16 to join the Marine Corps and to uh, went when I was 17. A lot of people have these weird horror stories about the Marine Corps and 
I just don't have them. Like, I feel like everything was exactly what I was offered. I looked in a magazine and I saw these guys raiding a ship and doing these shipboard tactics. And, and I thought it was the coolest thing. And I was like, I want to be those guys. And they said, that's what it is. You have to go through all these levels. I went through all the levels. I got exactly what I asked for. And I did my four years and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was like a really good advanced uh, day camp or something. <laughs> And um, was there any standout experiences during your time with the Marines or was it like you said, it was pretty much to the book and it was, it was quite standard or was there any days or any weeks where something out of the blue popped up and you had to kind of get out of your comfort zone and do something that you didn't anticipate yourself doing? Well, I, I, I feel that kind of comes on early in the Marine Corps. I, I think the, the biggest mission or, or takeaway that I had is that when, whenever they tell you you can't do it, that is bullshit. You you yeah. can do it. It is a matter of how much you try and how much you push. Like, I hate it running with a passion. Like, a runner's high, that is bullshit. I don't know what anybody's talking about. That, that shit's miserable from the first step to the last step. But mm. hating every moment of it, I still had to do it and didn't have a choice. So you can keep doing it. Your legs say they don't work, but you just fucking push them and, and you will. Cool. Well, I actually hate running too, so we're on the same boat in that regard. <laughs> um, as, as you briefly mentioned there, in 2001, you ended your service with the Marines and you joined the Baltimore Police Department, where you served in patrol, major case narcotics, sergeant and unit commander. I'm just curious to know what made you want to be a police officer and no longer be a Marine? I know you've said that you didn't really enjoy parts of being a Marine, but why then go into uh, the police yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons, but I want to backtrack a second. You made me uh, just just kind of think about what I was doing in the Marine Corps, mm. <laughs> and, and and yeah, it was like this skill, and it was this professional thing. But I think that professionalism seeded in like my first critical error. And, and that was in the Marine Corps, there's this big concept. And because of a lot of us are poor, we do come from all the different races and divisions in America. Um, the most oppressed communities are the ones that go into the military at the highest rates. Uh, so Native American males and then black males yeah. and then poor white males. That's who goes disproportionately to the to military. And that's who also disproportionately is shot by American police. No, mm -hmm. no coincidence. But what it's sown in this air is everybody is green is, is the idea. And that made me think that professionalism and being a good officer or being just a, a good soldier, being a good person, I guess, was about being racially blind and kind of immune to those effects. If I was RoboCop and treated everybody according to the law, then I couldn't possibly do anything wrong. And I think that was a really big error that led to me taking a long time to realize what the system in American policing was actually doing in effect. Um, so why I, I wanted to go into the police department right away is that uh, the unit I was in in the Marine Corps was an anti-terrorism unit that has to be anywhere in the world within 24 hours and sustain themselves for at least a month. I was really tired of moving around and I figured when the shit hit the fan, I wanted to know where I was going, not Yemen or Tanzania or something. Yeah. If I was so, going to risk my, my life dying, it was going to be for somebody that, that was at least lived near me. <laughs> Home comforts at least. 
So, like, when you go into Baltimore, was there any was there any other options at the time in your head, or was it always going to be working in the Baltimore Police Department, or was there other police departments across America, maybe in bordering towns, that interested you, or did you have your mindset on Baltimore? Well, we were actively recruited by Las Vegas, and I tried that out for a little while, but then was convinced that uh, the whole concept of living in the middle of the desert by myself and not knowing anybody at the age of 21 probably wasn't an intelligent plan so i decided to at least stay close to home and i applied for the surrounding counties and the city Um, certainly i wanted to go to the city i wanted the thrill of it but the counties do treat their cops better so i wouldn't necessarily say i would have turned them down but to give you a difference on the application process i think i already had a badge before the county even called me back to come for an interview really yeah. <laughs> i mean that's how it is like everybody always says there's no jobs i'm always like well actually there's about 300 police officer jobs in baltimore that you can get at any point in time oh interesting well that can be my plan f down the road if all else fails get my badge. I, um, I hope you have more letters in your alphabet list <laughs> yeah, okay just so when you entered the Baltimore Police Department, you start working there. Did you have any idea of the scale of the task ahead of you? Or did you kind of go in a bit blind and then suddenly once a week or two went by, you realized, hang on, there's a significant crime and drug problem around here? Or how was kind of the first few weeks for you personally? No, I would have to say I was kind of dramatically the opposite. I grew up with that mentality of only seeing Baltimore and the cities kind of through the lens of like the show the wire or what they portray on tv you know all the highlights and as accurate as a show like the wire is it is this very very narrow window into what the city actually is so i think i was really probably struck by how it was more normal than i I would have guessed by the way society paints it as as a first initial reaction i mean it, but but I, I don't know, dude, I'm a kind of slightly sick kind of weird person where I, I like <laughs> the danger and I like thrills and I like difference and I like arguments. So, I mean, there was this town called Pigtown that was one of the first ones that I, neighborhoods I policed in. And it was a neighborhood of rich, privileged kids who went to the school there, doctors, entrenched, really poor white community from a long time ago. And it bordered up against where Freddie Gray was killed in a deep wire style neighborhood in in a black ghetto. And it was as all this stuff came together, like it was the most beautiful chaos I can ever remember. (laughs) I don't know if I'm a good, I'm a good source for the, um, you know, like the shock and horror of the city like i really en- enjoy that aspect of it you, you have too positive a mindset towards the whole thing to get uh the ruthless nature out of it potentially well i i think then you're actually getting into one of my my weird things i've arrived to now that i don't think that any of the stuff with guns and with policing and stuff can be actually trained i think you're talking about a weird genetic predisposition to not fearing physical fear and what militaries actually do is they selectively screen out people who don't have a fight flight or freeze response mm. because we have some kind of genetic weird thing where we don't fear physical fear so we we'll put ourselves in danger at a, at, you know, a greater risk than other people because we kind of enjoy it mm. that's an interesting point 
And you, you mentioned uh, the wire there and how it's somewhat realistic with real life Baltimore. I'm just wondering, in your opinion anyway, there's there's obviously a big drug epidemic going on at the minute in Baltimore and it's been there for a substantial amount of time. Like could say a, a hamster dam work in real life like it did in the wire or like how does the dynamics work? Is there a certain area where most of the drugs are done in Baltimore or was it more scattered or was there a certain place downtown or wherever? How did the geography work? Well, I don't know if it's different in other cities, but in Baltimore, it, it everything is butted up against one another. So the rich neighborhoods right next to the poor neighborhoods and, and all over, it's kind of like polka dotted, really. So a bit like so, LA. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So so everything is everywhere. Hmm. And, and so you can find a lot of drugs no matter where you go, other than like uh, Mount Washington and Roland Park, which you never see in the wire <laughs> because yeah. like that's an area of Baltimore none of us actually knew existed at, at, at all. Uh, where were we going with that? I don't remember. Sorry, I was saying like firstly, could a Amsterdam work in real life or else? Second? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I guess it you have some level of harm reduction in, in that aspect, but I have arrived at the point where from being an, what was called like a knocker when I did my first kind of where you saw the on the wire, when you see the police jacking up people yeah. on the side of the streets, and I did every that for ep- about a year, <laughs> every episode. <Yeah. laughs> so I did that for a year and like it's pointless. And you realize that really fast that Every time you arrest somebody, there's somebody else just fills their, their slot right away. And then when I got deeper into the drug things, doing major case narcotics, I started seeing the bigger picture from like the entire life of the drug dealer and all the circumstances that ar- arrive around that. And I think a lot of the times we end up like locking up people that kept the neighborhood actually safer. It's, it's kind of a sick thing, but like think of the mafia in New York. kind of infamously their local neighborhoods were relatively safe because they kept thing on lockdown in a type of of tyranny but i i guess on some level it depends how much liberty versus uh tyranny you want um but for the drug argument i'm completely at the case where i think decriminalization is a really failed half step and kind of sows in uh, not religious uh, shows in racial disparities and prejudices more Mm. because what decriminalization essentially does is it does this harm reduction thing where it starts treating the use like it's a medical issue and getting those people help but that really means that just privileged people end up getting help and you still maintain all the violence and and bad sides of the oppressed communities and of the drug dealing itself so i'm for complete 100 percent legalization i think narcotics are, are for the purview of public health departments and doctors not the issue of state force and state force especially in america means you will comply with everything we tell you or we'll fucking kill you so that's a different type of ball game. I don't think we should be enforcing any of those type of things. So when you'd be on patrol, as you said, and you spent the first year as a knocker, that's what you've termed it as, wasn't it? <laughs> that is my, fr- my first year I spent on foot patrol okay. in Freddie Gray's neighborhood. <laughs> Literally, that was my thing. And then I went to patrol in a town called Pigtown, uh, which I did midnight set for a couple of years. And then I went to did day shifts there and then i went to a rich white neighborhood that really shocked me in up in the north and i had to get away from that (laughs) 
I didn't know it existed. <laughs> no rich white neighborhood I, existed. <laughs> I thought it was all Baltimore was the same image that everybody has yeah. of Baltimore. And it's absolutely not true. There's tons of million dollar houses with creeks and streams running through green fields. Mm. So go on. Obviously, I didn't want to be around that. Yeah. <laughs> Sign up for that shit. Near that. Green grass. So nice then, Right. They're nice, <laughs> but nobody can afford to live there. Like cops can't live there. Yeah. There's no middle class in Baltimore. So when you're middle class, you can venture into the poor areas, but you're never going to venture into the elites. Mm. You know, if that makes so, sense. No, it does. It does. I'm just going off, as you said, I'm going off what I see on TV or what I hear in the news. And was there, is there ever a mutual respect between the drug dealers and the police officers, especially in kind of a town where I'm sure you got to know a good few of the drug dealers. Was there ever a time where, you knew they were up to something that wasn't legal, yet you kind of just gave the blind eye towards it and just went on? Or did you always kind of hustle them up and check them and always keep them on their toes? Oh, no. I mean, most good cops make out deals with the drug dealers and with the whole goal of just maintaining that there won't be any violence or uh, messing around with, like, I mean, say parades or things that are going on or if there's events, you actually, I mean, you kind of work out deals with that kind of stuff. I know it sounds weird, but you do. Hmm. Um so, like, especially once I got onto the bigger narcotics level, there's a lot of mutual respect there. Most of those cops are very professional cops, and most of those drug dealers are actually quite professional drug dealers. <laughs> so, yeah. we kind of s- see ourselves as playing the game that we are at that level. I think everybody accepts that it's a bullshit game. You're on their side, they're on that side. And especially when you have my mentality, where even if you had a gun, like to me, it was about the chase. So like I wanted to tackle you, get the gun and say, okay, see you tomorrow. And there's yeah. like that whole drug war is kind of like that. And was there a culture within your department? As, as you said, you were more about the chase, doing arguably the right things. Was there a divide or was there a majority or minority of people who you knew were kind of crooked in how they dealt with things and they were pretty much shoot to kill? Or how how was the dynamic within the actual department itself? Okay, I was I was not doing good things. Uh, let's make that clear. I, I might have had good intentions, but I was not doing good things. What uh, what are the more dangerous things about American policing and, and British policing really isn't that far off? Is, is that it, it takes the oppressed people and it makes us enforcers to impress our people even more, but under this color of law where we think it's right and, and it's it's not so like i wasn't racist but because i was a pawn in a racist system that made me have racist actions so that's why i don't think that it matters very much whether a cop is racist or not i think it, it matters more whether the system is is racist because you're just going through your incentives and disincentives and you follow these things i think a lot of these cops they're just people who are following a system and they don't know what's going on and they're just if the the job says you arrest people and this is what you get paid for and so they go out and they think they do their job because they're following the law now i was really shocked by how many of them were criminal i didn't (laughs) this is one of my my bigger shocks is that uh, I realized at one point in time that I had known about a hundred officers personally that had been arrested and convicted of an offense. 
And then in my 10 years, there was over 300 police officers in Baltimore who had been arrested and convicted of a crime while there were police officers. So that comes up to somewhere under 10% of the people in policing. And I know that there's nowhere near 10% of the people anywhere else of any place that I know where there is that highest percentage of people that are going, that are convicted criminals, not even in the worst neighborhood in Baltimore. Mm. Wow, that is a, that is a crazy statistic. You've mentioned him before, so Freddie Gray is obviously a topical um, name that crops up a lot of the time when people talk about police and crime in Baltimore. And in 2015, he was arrested, and there was a lot of drama because he died a week later from, I think it was a spinal injury he allegedly sustained while being arrested um, by five or six police officers. And this ultimately led to riots and mayhem in Baltimore with protests against the police officers involved in the arrest. And what, what eventually came of that is all the officers got off scot-free, just like we've seen in other similar situations involving police officers and civilians. And one thing I'd like to clarify before I ask my next question is like, were they even allowed to kind of hustle him and arrest him in the first place or what they did by searching him initially? Was that, was that actually illegal? Well, so it would be my entire argument that, yeah, that wasn't legal. You had no right to uh, stop him in that. Well, they have a, they have a right to investigate him. It's a kind of a cruel reality of American tyranny where we have that judges create case law. So that, that actually what it ends up doing is that means that if a court case goes to a judge, then they make their opinion on the interpretation of that law. So you end up with multiple interpretations of a law, and then that is kind of like the basis of tyranny when the public can't actually do anything because you're being ruled then by judges and not by the actual law. So how that ends up applying to Freddie Gray is that there's case law that says that police officers can stop you if you avoid eye contact with a police officer. And then there's case law that says you can, uh, a police officer can stop you if you make eye contact with a police officer in these so-called high crime areas. So they had a right to stop him um, legally, no matter what he had done in that situation. So you're kind of already off to a really bad uh, legal argument to begin with. I think I've read that you have to write down in whether your logbook or something that if you search someone, obviously you need to have the legal requirements to do so. But was there a lot of the time where they would just do stuff? Your naivety is just flying. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody does these reports. The vast majority of reports aren't ever conducted, when it, even written down at all when it comes to stop and frisk. Entire units just go around this kind of what knockers do, is you go around doing mass searches of people in the corners, and a small single digit of those, percentage of those are documented. Absolutely, maybe. The, real legal, the only legal real precedent you have to stop somebody in that manner when you search them is by a, a Terry stop, which is the case law, Terry v. Ohio, again, problem case law. And that gives the officer, when somebody's displaying the characteristics of an armed person, that gives you the right to do that. Now, I was this person that was professionally obsessed, so I went around on the streets, and I was, like, it was my pet peeve, my obsession to try and find as many of these legal Terry stops as I could, where I could legally justify just jacking somebody because I thought they had a gun. Mm. And guess how many I came up with after a decade on the streets? You want to come up with it? Um, I'm going to sound like an idiot no matter what number I come up with, but um, I will say, um, I'm going to say this, uh, 15? Two. Two. 
So, so you're pretty close. Uh, most cops think they see hundreds or thousands of them. <laughs> they certainly don't. <laughs> I saw two that met the requirements. The first time I saw somebody, he had a gun, and they, he, well, everything was exactly what I thought. And the second time, the poor guy had a colostomy bag. Wow. Uh, did you ever take part in these... I keep referring them to as TV shootouts, but they're not. They happen in real life. But I'm just wondering, were you ever involved in big shootouts with drug dealers or crime, uh, people who had committed crimes, or, as you said... No, like, that is epic failing at policing. Like, you get into shootouts and you get in the foot chases because you screwed up. Mm. Like, I don't, we, like, we kind of glorify when policing goes wrong. Yeah, we do. That, that's propaganda. That's all you've seen. I'm not supposed to get into the shootout. Like, I don't go into the guy's house and raid it unnecessarily. I, can, I have time. I have all the time in the world. I'm literally an hourly employee. I have all the time in the world. So I'll wait for the guy to come outside until he's vulnerable, vulnerable and I have the advantage. It's, the cops create their own situations a lot of times. I was, just, I was just looking back at some of those, the famous tweets you did when you kind of exposed the the ins and outs of the Baltimore Police Department. And you stated that you saw officers illegally searching thousands of people with no legal justification, which is what you've already mentioned as well but you also mentioned that you witness officers pissing and shitting inside suspects home during raids on their beds on their clothes and i'm just wondering how on earth could you exist in a department where that was the norm um i'm just wondering was there not a conscious part of your brain where when you went home you thought gee like what am i why am i letting this stand or did it just it becomes such a normal state of affairs that it just kind of nearly embedded itself into your your perspective and mindset. Well, policing are kind of like most other humans where you get into this thing where you, there is a certain level of groupthink where I let a lot of things go, like slapping people or stretching reports and stuff like that, where I just didn't report it. But you end up with like how most people in schools and children, they separate themselves at the lunchroom table. The same thing happens in policing. So one of the reasons why I ended up blinded for, for quite a while is that those groups kind of separate themselves. You weed them all out and which cops you can do what things around. Now, if you wanted to go chase drug dealers and get in the car chases, by all means, you could do that with me day in and day out. Yeah. But if you were going to be robbing somebody, you couldn't do that with me. That was, that was perfectly clear. So like the, the guys who were in the major case squad, we didn't do any of that stuff. Like th that was just a group and we never really saw a lot of it. That story, I had, I just, I had heard from somebody else and then it was confirmed that that happened in that unit because we got crossed over. So then when uh, I had heard the story and then when we did a raid with that unit, then they did it. And it was like, oh, well, I guess it was real. I didn't know it was real to that time. Like our units wouldn't do those type of things. So the recent uh, gun trace task force in Baltimore, the big thing where they were running around robbing people, their office was literally across the street, uh, across the street, across the hallway from my unit in the major case squad. And it, we never saw them do any of that other than the fact that we knew what their tactics were, but they were kept separated from us. All those, whenever those groups do that, those types of units, that's one of the, the, the ways that accountability is shed from the leadership because they let them run completely unsupervised. So they really only encounter other officers in the way that they prescribe and want to, 
to do that other than the normally accepted stuff, which is shortcutting all the rules and policy. But the basic premise, the fact is, is that everything is over-criminalized. Every American is violating a law that's arrestable pretty much at every point in time. And all the cop rules for the cops' behavior is completely impossible for them to actually do their job because they have all these rules that conflict with one another. I mean, the entire premise that they protect and serve is not even true at all. There's no legal requirement. Nowhere in training does it say that the officers are to protect the public. They're literally, everything is about the officers protecting themselves, not the public. They protect themselves in elite property. So we have all these, these juxtapositions of ideas and what is legally there. And I think that just shows mass confusion as to what's what and what's ultimately good. Now, that's an interesting point. And is the problem with the recruitment of underqualified people or police officers or is it the is it the culture within these different departments all over America that's that's causing these issues like these Freddie Gray incidents and these I could mention hundreds and hundreds of examples in Baltimore in other places across America do you think it's it's the culture within these departments that people come in and then they they kind of get sucked into it or is it the actual individuals being hired to do the police work in the first place no, I don't think it's either of those things. I really think that that's missing the, the point entirely. I mean, it's not your fault. You're not. Yeah, no, <laughs> this isn't your no, field. You're not supposed to know yeah. that. <laughs> but, but yeah, this is about the system of what policing is. Cops are a pawn in a system. And so we, it, it's definitely not them. And it, there is a culture problem, but the culture is an American culture problem. And you guys really aren't like we, a lot of places like to look at America and think that their policing is better and their policing isn't really better. They're just not saturated with guns like we are. And that creates an entirely different dynamic that expresses it. But what policing is, is what your society is when the shit hits the fan. Who are they really? And when it really comes down to it, we are a fearful people that fears the other and in the sake of safety will kind of do anything that we can to protect ourselves from the others and then in america especially you have this kind of cultural mentality overall that fears the others we we get in arguments about races and we have all these preferences and these divisions of left and right and all these things that separate our society but those are long time tricks uh, of of plutocracies to go ahead and separate the people and make them fight one another so that they miss the forest from the trees and the point is is that we have been talking our entire all around this world we argue about which people will police us and how how they will police us and that is a fundamentally corrupt question we have to say who will we who will police us and how they will police us until this community is actually in charge of a police department and aligns the incentives towards what the community actually wants you're never going to get there your police departments are political armies for your local jurisdictions they literally don't serve you and this is very much true where you are they are not doing the things that solve crime so for instance i'll go to this real quick uh, we can get into long diatribes about any subject you want to these conversations are rants and i can go on for forever but there are four things that are correlated to violent crime and this is all over the world the number one thing correlated to violent crime is environmental poisoning most most reflected by lead poisoning and that's so it's most effectively fought by lead poisoning abatement in 1972 in america they did the cafe standards where they took the lead out of the gasoline and then 20 years because what happens is is you're poisoning the children uh, and then by having lead paint and other environmental uh, stuff around them and then they have violent re results when they're when they're older because when they're 20 years old then they don't have the same impulse controls they have violent tendencies they have lower iqs because they've been literally poisoned by their environment 
So then we had the dramatic crime reductions in America in the 1990s, and that was reflected nationwide. Now, New York ended up following this up. Their public health department got the crime, the lead levels lower than any any city in the entire nation. And now 20 years later, they are the safest city in the entire nation by a mile because they have the lowest lead levels in the entire nation. The number two thing that is associated with violent crime is, is income inequality. And this is not poverty. We often say this is poverty and it's not at all. There are tons of poor communities, There's no correlation between poverty and violence. It is income inequality. So whenever the rich are staring us right in the face, it's why in a place like Baltimore, you have a little bit of elevated factor because the income inequality is so stark there. The third thing that is associated with local instability, which is often like socioeconomic conditions and things like that, which you'll see people reflect in America as fatherless homes, but fatherless homes are a symptom of local instability. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is the actual police, because police do not fight crime. They literally create create crime. We have no idea how much crime is caused. We actually, crime, whenever you look at the measurement, it is literally the measurement of what a police officer does. It is the measurement of a police officer's activity, not a citizen's activity. It is how many times a cop suspected this person and charged them with something or wrote something down. It is, has nothing to do with actual reality of how much crime was committed. So nowhere in the world is any police department fighting those four things. So no matter where you are, you do not have a police department that is at all remotely focused on actually fighting crime. They are focused on continuing their own existence. Wow. Sorry. No, that's my rant. That's good. That, 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 that's <laughs> exactly what I need. And I can uh, just literally segment that four minutes and just be like, any questions you have on the police department and what needs to be done, bang. And I'll link that. You were saying there about police officers with their statistics and keeping their jobs alive more so is is that a huge part of the corrupt nature perhaps of the police department that if they so if they do their jobs they could inherently get rid of some of their jobs as well because by there being a lack of crime and a lack of drug activity that's going to mean there's going to be a lack or a lack of want for police officers so is there have you ever witnessed yourself whether police officers kind of had a lenient view on things we're like oh now nah, listen we'll we'll deal with that later down the line because we don't want to sort it out just yet we'll take our time well I, I think all humans kind of get some cognitive dissonance when they're thinking about what they're actually doing and what the results are versus what they they wish their results were actually going to be but i really don't think it's, it's police officers that have any resistance at all to changing the idea what you're saying is, yes, policing, its ultimate goal needs to be the elimination of purpose. But you've really got to be careful about what we're focusing as policing. So if you're policing, if your definition is, as it currently is, is the only answer is violence, then yes, if your only answer is violence, then you're, we need to do everything we can to eliminate your purpose and your association with our community. But if your goal is to fight the things that cause crime, well, then you can endlessly do this thing. And we don't need to do that with guns of us. There's no reason why you have a gun to make a car stop or anything like that. There's just no reason for that. So we can start doing the things that continually fight crime. So even if you end up, say you get all the lead poisoned out of the environment, well, you still have local, you still have income inequality issues. So you focus on that. You're still going to have homelessness issues. You're still going to have, uh, you know, people that have, need assistance or something. If, Whatever the next thing is on the list, there will always be a causation to crime. But police don't look at what causes crime. 
they only investigate the actual conditions of the crime. So even if you think about like a robbery, police go in and they investigate all the things that happen. But there's no justice in that because justice is in finding a way to stop the action, not stop the person doing the action. Mm. It's really ridiculous and pointless if we catch every bank robber, if we don't ever look at why people rob banks to begin with. And we literally don't look at why. And as soon as we change our focus to why, we'll have an endless goal of continual societal improvement. And do you ever see a case, well, a future where that will represent the police departments across the United States, that it's all about prevention rather than reaction if that makes sense so preventing these crimes and finding out why people want to do these things and what contributes to them wanting to rob a bank or sell drugs or do you still think it's just going to be the typical 101 type style of you know let's arrest people let's file this let's do that or do you ever see it within the near future perhaps of a complete change in the mentality of police force well here's what my lessons have taught me so far for all of us that really care about this issue, it is going to feel like nothing ever changes. Everyone around us is complete morons. We're going to get what we're saying, and we're, we're continually screwed. But all the science and all of history and all of reality tells us that every generation is better than the next generation. It is true that the the, the arc of more of justice is long, but it always does come you know does come about wherever that saying goes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's just inevitably true that these things will take place because. The more people understand that this is actually tyrannical rule and you're being oppressed by your governments, then they will stand up. That's, that's just the way it always works about human history. So I think inevitably we will end up with these better systems, but it's brutally painful when you're aware of them and can't really do anything about it. Recently, actually, here in Ireland, we, we actually had our own controversy involving allegations by two police officers that were whistleblowers. Um, and they were stating that there was a problem with the classification of some homicides and some some had not been investigated properly. And I'm I'm just curious, do you do you genuinely think that across the globe, and I know it's quite a vague question to ask and it's probably a tough one to answer, but like outside of Baltimore, have you experienced um these allegations in other parts? Of, say America outside of Baltimore have you been in Europe have you been in the UK where you've seen bad acts of police um well not bad acts but just unprofessional acts by police officers well in Baltimore I've definitely been over to 50 cities and one of the big things that I joke and laugh about with every activist and every single person that talks about policing is that they're all like well you don't understand it's unique here no one's a label. All the same problems as every other person that has told me that their city is unique. And I can't help but laugh at crime makes me come off a little arrogant. But yeah. no, none of these things are unique. I have talked all over the world about these kind of things. And so what you end up having is all the police thing is essentially the same if this is destruction. So what happens is we end up getting really friendly faces on fascism. So I say, and like everybody, when you look at America right now, they look at Trump, they're like, blah, blah, blah. And they see things and they're like, yeah, nothing changes. This is America. It's the same old shit. Yeah. But what we happen is we have the world's friendliest face on fascism, which was President Obama. He makes all the evil palatable and look good and, and ways that it can come with the community. So you have that in local areas all the time. You'll have good lawyers and good judges, and you'll have good police officers that can mitigate the harm. But remember, all they are doing is mitigating harm of the system as much as they possibly can. And this is why you want the people in there, and you want them to fight it, because they, they are actively resisting and making it better. 
that is because their human morality is superseding the system and they're they're taking that at a personal loss and a loss of their career i assure you and jesus i'm just i'm trying to get a he- my head around some of these things but it's I'm just wondering, like, what what do you tr- want to get? Because as you said, you've done a lot of talks, you've been on a lot of high profile podcasts, and you can see plenty of videos on YouTube. What do you want to get out of all of this? Of all of your your truths, your criticisms of the police force and of some of the government issues in America? Like, what what would be the best type of return for you? What would be the best result? in the next few years out of you doing all this promotion about the police force in America? I largely think from my, my scholarly work that the solutions are quite simple. I think we have a lot of these answers in other public health fields, education fields, and mainly because of my PhD work is in business management, of course, I'm excited to that way. But I really think that these things are organizations so they need to operate the way the organizations operate and through business principles, and we know these sciences. So I have a model called civilian-led policing, but that's just a proposition where essentially you use the stakeholders and shareholders theories that businesses use now, which are also run by a board of the people that are actually invested and interested in the company. I, I want policing to do the exact same thing where the actual community is in charge of the guidance, and then the CEO is responsible for tasking that out. And there's a whole lot of work laid out way that I explain how you can do this and you follow the latest scientific principles. That's just one option that's a better option. I'm sure there, there's plenty of people who think about it. What I just want us to really do is understand that the system that we have now is not tenable. And if we can do that and start moving towards solutions and people can start adapting on ways to improve it, no matter what it is, just to stop doing this bullshit, like uh, things would be dramatic. If we just stopped the drug war, it would be dramatically better. So if we would just stop doing some things, we would have dramatic improvements. So to just move towards that direction and then when we can get towards that direction, I can shed some of my guilt for the, the role that I had in all these things. I can provide a solution, and I can go back to a normal life where nobody has to listen to my ass talk <laughs> Well, no, I think it's, it's, it's really, really important what you're, you're trying to do, and I, I actually do commend you for it. It's definitely a very noble thing to do. And last thing I'd just like to say is you're talking about trying to make change and change things for the better, but I'm just wondering, have you ever come into or encountered resistance from anyone or any police officer or former police officer, someone involved in a certain department, because what you're saying is it's going against the grain a tiny bit, even though I do think it's right and you firmly believe it's the right thing to try and promote, but have police officers or sergeants or commanders or whatever, have any of them given you grief? No, you just ignore them? No, they're not my problem. Police officers are employees in a system trying to do good. They largely believe it's us who figure out what that good is and then they'll do it. They often say things like, we don't make the laws, we just enforce them. So I don't really find them to be the pushback. I think the, the worst thing is, is that the most pushback I get is from the people that I'm trying to help the most. It is a weird condition of oppression that in a human idea that justice is revenge plus equality. That's how most of us see justice. So they're, they end up kind of what ends up being the goal is that people don't actually want equality. What they want to do is be the oppressor. So a large part of what I'm actually fighting is that people on the left and people who think they're doing the right thing and are making a system that would be better, they're really just trying to make a system that makes them the oppressor instead of somebody else. And our fight is supposed to be to end oppression, not to be the oppressor thinking that we will be better at it. I, f- I finish my podcast traditionally with a few quick fire questions. So that's that's the chunky 
the deep conversation over with. But uh, to finish off things, I'll just do a quick fire question. So the first thing that comes into your head, if you could please say it, so that would be absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Okay. And uh, don't be embarrassed, by the way. People sometimes say... Oh, I'm not. <laughs> okay, well, the first question is, who's your favorite character from The Wire? Oh, Omar, without question. Omar. Omar's coming. Omar's coming. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's a bully of bullies. And, yeah. um, you know, I've kind of done the same thing. I think if uh, Omar and I had met on the streets, we would definitely have gotten along. <laughs> that's probably... That's good to hear. What is uh, your favorite song of all time? Oh, that's easy. That letter. It is a cover by Jack White of a Sunhouse CD from a song from like the, I don't even know if it, it might have hit 1800s, but I think it's like the 1920s, 1930s. And Jack White covered it, and I just think he takes it to the next level. Nice. What is your favorite place or city in the United States? I don't know if I can have my favorite yet. I don't want to be spoiled. I'm a little too early in understanding Phoenix, but I am really liking Phoenix so far. But uh, I can tell you my most hated city, hands down. Yeah. I can give you that. That is Portland. Why? I was there this summer. Uh, they, um, there are that the pinnacle of that neoliberal that Malcolm X was trying to warn everybody about. Okay. They think they're going around trying to help everybody, but they're really doing like the most racist, bullshit, discriminatory stuff, and and they just they think they're they're doing good. And it's it's infuriating. Okay, I didn't notice that, but maybe uh, I'll try and notice it the next time I'm there. There's a TV show called Portlandia that kind of just makes fun of that that reality of them but it's it's way more real than i would have thought <laughs> what is your favorite cop film of all time i don't think i have a favorite complete film because i think they're all dog shit once you've done the job <laughs> you know yeah. like, these are all terrible but i will say that in end of watch uh, which is a recent one with jake Gyllenhaal and eric Pena, i think mm. he they have a, like the first half an hour of the movie is them two in a car just talking to one another and i really like that the most realistic uh actually like how patrol officers talk to one another a lot of people think that cops are professional or that the place is busy like it's not like that i mean most of us are morons we're children so <laughs> we don't actually do things properly but for those first 30 minutes the way they're talking is spot on and then they hit run into a veteran officer who gives them the speech about how they think they're doing good and but the enemy is not the street the enemy is the other cops in command, and they're going to screw them as soon as they get a chance to. And they think they're doing good now, but they're going to end up paying the price in the end. And that veteran advice is one of the best veteran advice anybody can give a young cop. The enemy is not the street. It is the other cops that are above you. Next question, NBA or NFL? And well, now it's NBA. Um, I've played football my whole life. I was a huge football fan. But I wrote an article called uh, The NFL is Not Racist or Unpatriotic. If anybody looks it up, I guess essentially the article obviously makes a case for the exact opposite. But I think especially with their propaganda dealing with veterans and glorification of veteran death and uh, masking trauma from PTSD, essentially the same kind of thing for, for uh, NFL players. And it's essentially uh, the NCAA is essentially a slave model that's legalized. I mean, dude, there's black guys up there being essentially auctioned off every time that the NFL has a draft. And it's just, it's not really, it's not cool. Wow. Can I, can I get that on your website? Like, I'd like to link that in this podcast. That yeah, article. that's on my medium page. How, how would I and get that? I just ended up recording the audio book for Crimes and Punishments in the 21st Century. That's my philosophical book that lays out all these kind of ideas from the basic principles because I get tied up in things that are like, simple to me but it, it comes as a shock just saying that police uh you know the crimes and measurement of a police officer's activity not a citizen's activity 
requires a lot of backtracking for people to understand. And then when it comes to how do you respond to crime, well, we got to get onto issues like I don't think there's free will. And I, I think the case is very clear that there's not free will. So to have some kind of rational approach to crime and to think you're going to reason with somebody about crime, that there's no way that that's not an effective solution whatsoever. And lastly, I like we, honestly, we could keep this going for eight hours, but I have a certain time limit or else my listeners don't have the attention spans to go beyond the hour. I'm a writer. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So last but not least, and the toughest by far, I ask this to every guest and they always struggle. So describe yourself in three words. Vulnerable, but prideful, mm-hmm. and tired. <laughs> okay that's an interesting one so um no that wraps it up michael and i just want to thank you uh, for coming on i know it's quite early over there hopefully you've got plenty of coffee or whatever is necessary to get you through the rest of the day but um get some coffee listen i got a lot of bits and coffee is the world's <laughs> greatest combination the two c's c squared <laughs> listen thanks a million for coming on you've given some incredible insights and i'm no doubt that uh especially all the european listeners that will be what listening to this will definitely open their eyes to what's really going on. Yeah, I wish you all the best uh, with your future work. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, let anybody, if they want to have questions and get into a particular issue, I'll nail it down. I mean, really trying to summarize 16 years of experience in an hour is essentially impossible. (laughs) We tried, though. We tried. We do our best. Okay. Thank you, brother. Thanks a million for...